This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let me be perfectly explicit in this podcast. Okay, here it goes. It's Wednesday, December 13th, 2017, from Slated to the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca, and Amorosa has been forcefully kicked out of the White House, forcibly removed. Went out in a fit of anger and recrimination. That's not the Amorosa I know. It was also reported by BuzzFeed that Amorosa was quite bothered by the White House's constant displays of racism, as with Charlottesville. She was also, of course, very upset by the fact that the only answer that the White House had to charges of racism was Amorosa. Her indignity and sense of injustice manifested itself in a quite logical act of civil disobedience. She used the Rose Garden to photograph 39 members of her wedding party. We shall overcome, Amorosa. No justice, no peace from being photographed in a 39-member wedding party. Here's, uh, Here's the report from E!, This past spring, Amorosa made headlines. That used to mean something when ink was spilled. Now everyone on Twitter makes a headline every day. Anyway, Amorosa made headlines after she brought her 39-person bridal party inside the White House for a photo shoot in the Rose Garden. Her visitors loudly wandered around looking to snap photos in the Rose Garden and throughout the West Wing, four current and four former White House officials told Politico. Oh, the loud members of the wedding party. Good thing there's no racial tinge to that. How odd that civilians would be enamored and want to take pictures of the White House. Hmm. The article goes on to note, it was unclear whether Amorosa had permission and also says Amorosa was banned from posting the pictures online due to security and ethical concerns. Yes, we found the unethical one within the White House and she's been purged. Ethics taken care of. Amorosa gone. And she will be missed. She is to be replaced by Puck. On the show today, Alabama goes blue, and I've got some raccoon eating to do. Uh, I'm not really going to get into the details of the raccoon eating, which I promised to do, but I will talk about my feelings because they're important to honor my feelings. But first, let's now play a bit from our live show. Today, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame selected some new members, among them Nina Simone, Bon Jovi, the Moody Blues, the Cars, and Dire Straits. I think that's all of them, in fact. So what I and guest Chris Malamphy, along with Alexandra Petri, do is we go through everyone who was nominated. There are some pictures behind us. And we discuss the fact that Chris Malamphy, host of the Slate's Hit Parade podcast, has a vote in the Hall of Fame. Let's join that now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So Chris. Talk to me, Mike. You are a voter? I am a voter, yes. How many voters are there? There's no exact number, but I there understand. There is an exact number. You, we just, they don't, we just don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an exact number out there, but I don't know it. I hear it's somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 900 voters. Yeah. But let's say it's less than 1,000. All right, so there's eight to nine. And what, what's the criteria for getting in the Hall of Fame? How many numbers? What numbers uh, Okay, so you have to have released a recording at least 25 years ago. So basically, right now in 2017, we're hitting the early 90s. So, for example, two of uh, the nominees this year, uh, are making the ballot in their first year of eligibility. Those would be Radiohead and Rage Against the Machine because they each dropped their first recording in 1992. This criteria, it strikes me, will have to go by the wayside since, you know, YouTube counts as a recording, right? Everyone could put... I guess eventually. Like, the bar for putting out a recording is pretty low in the year 2017. Let's, let's cross that bridge when we get to it sometime in 2040, I guess. But, yeah, eventually that's, that's going to have to happen. Alexandra, what's your uh, jam? What's your musical jam? I don't, I'm a big I'm fan of like Eurovision, uh-huh. so I don't know why I'm on this panel, <laughs> given my musical taste. Uh, like World War One has some uh, great Abba songs. Are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They're, oh yeah, Eurovision. World They're War great. One. Did the Andrews Sisters? Did they make it? No, that's World War Two. Oh, World War One's so, got like er, so. Enrico Caruso. He's got some <laughs> real bangers. Um, I'm trying to think of good music. I've been listening to a lot of Taylor Swift lately. That's mainstream. Haven't we all. Yeah. But now, we're going to talk about the how many nominees? 17 nominees? 19, I believe. Oh, Jesus. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, no, they get longer. I mean, and to your point, I mean, as more and more artists get nominated, are we, are we cheering for Bon oh, Jovi cheering right now? Yeah. John the bon one Jovi. nominee I really hate. On, the, on, on his steel, I know, I know. Hey. I'm, I'm already bringing the room down. On his steel horse, he rides, and he's wanted yeah. dead or alive. I will say this for John Bon Jovi. First of all, everybody's saying he's a shoe in because right now he's leading in the fan vote. Oh. Fan vote doesn't count for much. And, and this is actually Bon Jovi, the band's second time on the ballot. So everybody's saying, oh, they're shoe ins. They've been on the ballot before, so they are not necessarily shoe ins. That's my hopefulness talking. If, uh, the fan, if the fan vote counted, Atlas Shrugged would win the National Book Award right. every year. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so before we, give, we assess the artistry of Bon Jovi, Sure. Do you? Th- he's not Oxymoronic a huge hit with the critics, although he's lasted a long time, and maybe the rockists have come to appreciate him. But he's such a uh, poor copy of uh, Mr. Springsteen. Okay. Do you think he'll get in? Do I think he'll get in? Yeah. I think he stands a better shot than he did the last time he was on the ballot, which was something like five years ago. Uh, if I can make a case for Bon Jovi, it's, it's that he is the pivot point in the 80s of pop metal, right? Prior to Bon Jovi, other than Jump by Van Halen, there were like no metal, quote, and I'm using that term advisedly, I'm putting air quotes around it, metal songs that were like pop radio chart toppers. John Bon Jovi effectively invented that genre. Aerosmith. Aerosmith, but not at the not, level of Bon not, Jovi. Yeah. And, and Aerosmith were kind of in a hard rock pocket in the 70s. Yeah. Aerosmith arguably got more pop metal after they came back post-run DMC than thanks to Bon Jovi. They're so, in the hall. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they're in the hall. Yeah. Next up for bid, the Cars, who are known for Rick Ocasek, and this is not Rick Ocasek. So I think I've now voted for the Cars twice. I will probably, probably vote for them again. The hard part is you only get five votes. It's, you know, I, I covered the Rock Hall as a journalist for a few years. Now I have the ballot, and I'm realizing how hard it is to actually just pick five. It's really, really tough. I have now voted for the Cars, I think, twice. I may vote for them again. I love them. They are, again, kind of a bridge band, right? They are new wave personified. They 
put out that first album in 1978 and it sounded like classic rock instantly, but it had synthesizers and it kind of was a 1980s album before it was even the 80s. So yeah, now they're, they're a legitimately formative band. Here's my case against the cars. Okay. There is a joy and a glee to a simple rock and pop melody. And yet there is, I can't quite put my finger on it. Their stuff seems overly simple to me. It does not seem... Isn't, seems, that, isn't it possible, though, that it sounds like it was like it sprung fully formed from the head of Zeus? It's kind of like the <laughs> songs or the just gi- like sounded like they were always there. Yeah, I mean, or the, the gigantic simplicity. noggin of Rick Ocasek. Yeah, right. He has a big head. And that's right. Ben Orr. He does have a big head. Yeah. That's, did Ben Orr write as many ben songs? Ben Orr, as that's uh, Ben Orr, actually, in this photograph. Yeah, yeah. And he sang some of their biggest hits. He sang Drive. He sang Just What I Needed. And oh, he sang right. yeah. Let's Go. Yeah. Yeah. Dire Straits. I don't think that's... I don't think this is Dire Straits. I don't think that's Mark Knopfler. I'm confused by this photograph. (laughs) Dire Straits, first time on the ballot, believe it or not. They have been eligible for like, I don't know, nearly two decades now? Yeah. Um, So that's surprising. Brothers in Arms, like... May, there, there would have been, there would have been CDs without it. But everyone it was, who bought a CD player in it 1987 was the killer app for your first CD player in 1985. Yeah. It really was, yeah, yeah. On musicianship alone, Knopfler and writing the score for Princess Bride and sure. craftsmanship of guitar. Do you think he'll get in? Do you think they'll get in? I think they stand a very good chance. This is the kind of band where the nominating committee will ignore them and ignore them and ignore them for years, and then they put them on the ballot and they get in instantly. So yeah. I would not be surprised if they got in. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. I'm rocking my pants. Put suckers in beer. How about this guy? All right. This is uh, LL Cool J's, I think, fourth time on the ballot. So hip-hop and the Rock Hall. Every, uh, you know, this has been a controversy. Should it be in the Rock Hall? I think it absolutely should. I would say that the Rock Hall actually gets dinged on rap more than it should. I think that the nominating committee has done a pretty admirable job of putting rappers forward. They've Several have gotten in. P.E. or Public Enemy are in. N.W.A. are now in. Run DMC have been in for years. LL Cool J really should be in. I think he's become this kind of lovable, cuddly figure who hosts award shows, and people have kind of started to underestimate him. In 1985, LL Cool J was no joke. Like, he he was one of the first artists on Def Jam. Uh, You know, Can't Live Without My Radio. Those early hits are, are serious stuff. And uh, he's he's an innovator in the in the field. I'll probably be voting for him. He, I, I think he deserves to be. He's in. also the inspiration for Clear Deodorant. Did you know that? The mom <laughs> no. said, "Knock what? you out." Video. He had the white stuff on, and someone said, "We got to do better. <laughs> we could do better." Uh, yeah. The meters are they the funky meters? Uh, yeah, another band that should absolutely be in. Yes, the funky meters. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, tied to the Neville brothers uh, through their leader, um, New Orleans band. I mean, you know, what, what more can you say? They're they're legends. And are they, you going to vote for them? Yeah, I probably am. But then again, I've said that now what six <laughs> times, and I'm probably <laughs> lot. Yeah. This is the hard part. You actually have to narrow it down to five. Why do we never get an answer when we're knocking at the door with a thousand million questions about hate and all right, so the Moody Blues are probably, all right, every year for the last few years, there's been a band on the ballot where the fans of that band are really outraged that they yeah. are not in the Rock and Roll Hall Like, of yes, aren't they just yeah, like, they, yes. they, they are this year's Chicago, this year's Journey, this year's Rush. Yeah. Like, 
the fans of the Moody Blues really, really care. They want them in badly. I think they're number two in the fan vote right now, and it's mostly through lobbying by hardcore Moody's heads, who exist, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Are they but prog rock? They are progenitors of prog rock. Like, their first hit was Go Now in like 1964, when like the British invasion was barely a thing. Actually, would you like to hear my favorite piece of chart trivia about the Moody Blues? Yes, yes, please. So the Moody Blues have exactly three top ten hits in America, and they had one in each decade. So they had Go Now in the 1960s. They had Nights in White Satin, which should have been a 60s hit because it was first released in 1967, but for reasons that are too complicated to get into, it didn't become a hit until, I believe, 1972. This is going to be a top of And then the third top ten hit is Your Wildest Dreams, which was a top ten hit in 1986. No other band has that weird chart pattern. They were just around a really long time. Okay, now here's what I want to talk about. These two. Nina and Sister Rosetta Tharp. Right. I think we have, do we have? One of these is an easier call. Okay, here is my argument such as it is. Sure. Sister Rosetta Tharp is a gospel performer who played uh, guitar, and she existed pre-rock and roll. Yep. She probably overlapped with, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets or Rocket 66. Ike Turner. Sure, she, yeah. in the early days. Yep. So she didn't exist when rock and roll exists, but without her, rock and roll would be significantly different. Also, gospel music into rock and roll, I mean, they stole from it, they borrowed from it, but... Spirituals, yeah, the stuff she Absolutely was mm-hmm. influential. Now, we have some Sister Rosetta Tharp. Can we play a couple? Yeah, so we could hear where that would become rock and roll. And she was great, and she had attitude, too, as a showman. So you might not know Sister Rosetta Tharp, but I think there'd be no rock without her. Nina Simone is an amazing, towering figure, extremely important for society and the civil rights. Also, in terms of talent, like, you know, uh, somewhat unparalleled. However, if this is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, or even if this is the rock plus hip-hop plus everything, plus Miles Davis is in it, Hall of Fame. Miles Davis is in the Hall of Fame. If anything is outside the Hall of Fame, I guess we would say classical music is outside. It would seem to me that the music... And Nina Simone even even played classical music. She was classically... Yeah, it would seem to me that she has things more in common with, say, Enrico Caruso than Sister Rosetta Tharp or anyone in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, I want to give her all her props. But when she covered a rock and roll song, right. she w- existed in the rock era, she would make it unrock to wit. But I'm just a soul <laughs> whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Hey, it's a great cover. She's a great talent. It's not rock and roll, rock and roll adjacent. But what's your counter argument to I mean, that? Nina Simone kind of played everything that surrounds rock, right? She yeah. played soul, she played jazz, she played R&B. If you ask me which of these two artists is likelier to get voted in, it's probably Nina Simone. I mean, she's undergoing a bit of a renaissance right now, sure. especially after the documentary. Sister Rosetta Tharp should be a no-brainer. I'm actually almost a little ticked with Sister Rosetta Tharp. This is her first time on the ballot. She probably should have been in. They have a category called early influences. She probably should have been in decades ago. I almost feel like this is a trial balloon. Let's see if people will vote her in. And if they don't, I would not be surprised if they just kind of, by fiat, whisked her in as an early influence. She, I mean, she deserves to be in either way. Chris Malamphy, Alexandra Petri, thank you guys so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
And now the spiel. Roy Moore lost, which is good because not only was he a candidate who would certainly champion some wrong policies, he offended our sensibilities. He offended our morality. He offended our very sense of right and wrong in a way beyond the way that most politicians who take stances we even fervently disagree with do. Although I found it interesting that many of the things that we found most unconscionable about him were some of the very things that made him most electable to members of the Alabama voting public. Now, I'm not talking about the 14-year-old girls, but so much of the rest of the uh, charging document, as it were, against Roy Moore is stuff that played really well in Alabama when he said that homosexuality should be criminalized, when he wouldn't take down the Ten Commandments, when he showed support for the Second Amendment by pulling out his gun in a rally, when he said that Muslims shouldn't be in Congress. They were, in fact, not running away from those. They were emphasizing those points there in Alabama. If that was his stance, he would have won. But there are also the 14-year-old girls. Did you see, by the way, the Jake Tapper interview that went down right before the election with his campaign surrogate, who insisted that you have to swear on a Christian Bible? And Tapper corrected him, saying, no, it could be any Bible of your faith, could be a Koran, could be a Jewish Bible. The law is not that you have to swear on a Christian Bible. That is not the law. And then the Moore surrogate stood there slack-jawed, saying nothing. You, you don't know that? Which gave rise to everyone saying, Tapper just owned this guy. Well, that's, that's the difference between these locals from Alabama and the pros like Kellyanne Conway were Kellyanne Conway to assert that falsity and then be corrected. She would not even let a millisecond go by before Tapper pointed out, before tap dancing and saying something like, well, that just goes to show, well, yes, of course we know that, Jake. Be that as it were, Jake, this is a Christian nation. I think the voters of Alabama want someone. That's all you do. You just never acknowledge defeat. And when you do, you don't do it with the pause and audio accompanied by the open, gape-mouthed visual. But you know a real reason, back to the uh, offensiveness of Roy Moore and how my sensibilities were thrown out of whack? You know what the biggest sensibility? It was Donald Trump. Just my indignation that Donald Trump could full-throatedly endorse this guy could violate a norm by backing Roy Moore and do so without consequence. I yearn for consequence for anything that Donald Trump does. So Donald Trump first supported Luther Strange, and that guy lost. Then Donald Trump backed Roy Moore, and he lost. You know what the takeaway is going to be? You know what Donald Trump is going to conclude from all of this? Just goes to show I was right. Wait, how were you right? You lost twice. I was right because I didn't trust myself. I first took McConnell's advice, and then I followed Steve Bannon. If I just did it myself, my own way, Trump is certainly telling himself we would have won. Chugs Diet Coke. But Roy Moore was a major Trump loss. And one of the great things is that a horrible, homophobic, Muslim-hating child molester doesn't get seated in the Congress. That's a good thing. But another thing is that Trump doesn't get a win. It's the same feelings I had about the tax bill. The tax bill would have really bad consequences for American society, but it is another Trump win. And that's a real reason why it's bad. Uh, Trump care, you know, ripping up Obamacare. I was definitely against Trump care. I want people to have health care. I really do. But equally, or maybe almost equally, I just wanted Trump to fail. And was this because of a snit? Was this because I'm petty? 
I can tell myself that, A, I stand by all those policy positions, anti-Roy Moore, anti-tax bill, anti-Trumpcare. I stand by all those policy positions because they're the right policies for Americans, uh, mostly Americans who aren't even me and it doesn't even affect my life. I don't know if I'll have bad consequences of the tax bill. I certainly wouldn't have any bad consequences from the health care bill, although I feel bad, sympathetic for my fellow Americans. And a 52-48 Senate is not the end of the world. It's what it is now. And if senators of good faith, if your sasses, flakes, and McCain's actually stand up and do the right thing, it might not be disastrous for the republic. So mostly, I was taking these stances in sort of an act of altruism, hoping that the country does better. But really, fundamental to these stances was my own personal fear feeling of wanting Trump to lose. Now, I could say that maybe there's a high-mindedness to even that, to wanting Trump to lose. Because if Trump wins, he'll have wind in his sails, he'll enact worse policies, he'll break norms and establish worse new norms. So it's a whole bunch of bad stuff for America. But I have to be honest with you, it's also an emotional thing to me. And to me, the Trump presidency is like every movie about an underdog and a bully. And we're right now before the final reel. And the underdog has been pushed and pushed and pushed. And the bully is not just succeeding, he's riding high. And we want, and it's part of human nature, and we tell ourselves it's the right thing. And it may be the right thing, but it's also a very human failure and a vengeful thing to want to punish and vanquish the oppressor. And that's where I am with Trump. There's a reason why all those movies about bullies work and why the bully always gets his comeuppance. And I don't think those things are always high-mindedness. So this is another example where Trump is failing and I feel good about his failing. And I can at least tell myself intellectually that there's a case that can be made that his failing is the best thing for America, or at least it averts the worst thing, which is Trump winning. So much winning. Tired of the winning. And then, as I was mostly thinking about my own selfishness, amidst the calls for Doug Jones last night, all the networks calling it, Fox actually cutting away from an interview with Sebastian Gorka about the unethical nature of Robert Mueller. That's what they were covering at the time they made their call, and they called it. And Doug Jones won, and Roy Moore lost. And I had a moment where I stopped thinking about how good this felt for me, and I really thought, good on you, Alabama. Good on you. It was before Doug Jones' speech. It was after all the networks got on board with the fact that Jones had won. And I said, you know what? Thank God. For once, people who are in fact different from me, who are really, really Republican, who are truly ideologically conservative, who are motivated against secular progressivism, which is probably something I stand for. But those people just said, no, this is a bridge too far. We can't stand for that. We're either going to vote against Roy Moore or stay home. Not in massive numbers, but like 21,000. But it was enough just as the same way that my fellow Americans deciding for Donald Trump in the Electoral College was enough to make me despair about my fellow Americans. This was enough to make me credit my fellow Americans, specifically that subset known as Alabamans, people I didn't have a whole lot in common with before this one 
effort before this one experience in the joint humanity of saying no. Roy Moore is too much. We've had some bad senators. If you don't believe me, look up James Henry Hammond. But I think Roy Moore would have been the worst person we ever elected in the U.S. Senate. And everything James Henry Hammond and all the other slave owners and all the other slave rapists ever did, you know, that was 150 years ago, 160 years ago. This is 2017. And this guy would have been the worst senator as judged against where we are uh, as a country in the present moment. This guy would have been the worst senator we ever seated. So I'm a little happy that it's 2017. And we at least for once avoided when it comes to federal office doing the worst thing we've ever done. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, who's wondering why the Jay Giles band didn't get in. Perhaps the ballot must have got lost somewhere down the line. The Gist was also produced by Mary Wilson, who feels that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame snub of Judas Priest makes her feel though nobody cares if she lives or dies, so she might as well begin by putting some action in her life, breaking the law, breaking the law. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast and also our personal Jesus. The Gist, trying to suggest a different strategy for one failed Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominee. Instead of raging, perhaps some soft power against said machine. Oomperu Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>